costs of multinational profits are now routed through tax havens, allowing firms to avoid billions of dollars in tax. In this podcast of an event on the 12th of April, Andrew Lee, Shadow Assistant Treasurer and Federal Member for Fenner in the ACT, discussed how a Labor government will tackle tax avoidance in Australia and our region and announced a new policy initiative to help crack down on multinational tax avoidance and restore fairness into the system. Okay, thank you everybody for, for coming. It's actually a, a really great turnout uh, given the, uh, the uh, short notice. Um, first of all, I would like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay our respects to the, uh, to the elders of the Ngunnawal people past, present and emerging. So uh, we've got a treat for you, for you today, um, a, um, a, a, a talk from, from um, Dr Andrew Lee, who's going to be um, looking at um, tax pirates and, and tax fairness. My name's Grant Walton. I work for the Development Policy Centre and I'm also uh, working for uh, the Transnational Research Institute on Corruption. The Development Policy Centre is a think tank located within the Crawford School. We look at issues to do with Papua New Guinea and the Pacific and aid and development. Uh, the Transnational Research Institute is a network of uh, scholars who are working and researchers who are um, researching uh, how, uh, ways to better understand and address corruption. So it gives me great pleasure to um, introduce the Honourable Dr uh, Andrew Lee. Um, he's the Shadow uh, Assistant Treasurer and Federal Member for FINA in the ACT, um, which is actually uh, in my electorate. And Andrew um, uh, actually uh, lives in the same suburb that I do and uh, recently launched uh, a book at the Hackett Shops on 50 years of, um, of, of the suburb of Hackett. And, um, and it, was a, it did a great job and, and surprised the crowd by actually reading this tomb of, um, of, of history um, about Hackett. So, so um, um, if he was, if he was enth as enthralling now as he was then, I think we're in for a treat. <laughs> now, prior to being elected in 2010, Andrew was a professor of economics right here at the Australian National University. He holds a PhD um, in public policy from Harvard, and he graduated from the University of Sydney um, with first-class honours in law and arts. Um, he's a fellow of the Australian Academy of Social Sciences and a past recipient of the Young Economist uh, of the Year, um, which is given every two years by the uh, Economic Society of Australia to the best Australian economist under 40. Andrew still publishes um, at an incredible rate. Um, I, I count six books um, that, uh, that you, you can... Um, you can look at on a range of topics, in, in, including on um, the luck of, of politics, um, uh, on randomisters, on this, this trend of RCTs. And um, he's even got a book called The Economics of Just About Everything. So there's a topic really for, for everyone. He's got a, po a podcast titled The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. And perhaps most importantly, Andrew blogs... Um, for us at the Development Policy Centre. And if you've ever thought about getting your ideas about development, aid, the Pacific, Papua New Guinea, out there into the world, um, please have a look at the Development Policy Centre blog and, um, and put in a submission uh, to, our, um, to our blog editors. So in his talk today, Andrew will examine the problems associated with international tax ha havens and given that there is an election coming up, he'll discuss how a Labor government will tackle tax avoidance in Australia and the region, and he'll announce 
uh, a new policy initiative to help crack down on multinational tax avoidance and restore fairness to the system. So without any further ado, Dr. Andrew Lee. Well, thank you, Grant, for a most uh, generous introduction. And uh, of course, uh, can I begin by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people on whose lands we meet today and paying my respects to elders past and present. Uh, I can't think of a more appropriate spot to be than uh, back at ANU uh, announcing new ideas on day two of the election campaign. Uh, thanks to the colleagues and friends who are here. Uh, particularly, I'd acknowledge uh, John Braithwaite, uh, one of our outstanding tax scholars, and uh, it, uh, does us a real honour by being here today. Thank you, John. Uh, Dev Policy, uh, the, uh, the work of Grant and Ashley and others, uh, in bringing together what must surely be uh, the number one ideas shop for thinking around development economics. So very grateful for, to them for uh, putting together this event uh, on a timetable which is uh, uh, rather more appropriate to, uh, to, to an election cycle uh, than it is to the normally uh, more leisured and organised pace of academic events. It's common for forms of serial fiction, such as comic books or film and TV franchises, to have a new start to that universe. It's called a reboot. And on occasion, when you're discarding the previous continuity or plot lines, the rebooting producers will change the tone of the text. They might favour a more gritty, realistic theme. And the reboot that I'm really hoping we're going to get from Disney is titled Tax Pirates of the Caribbean. In this action-packed drama, a devilishly handsome team of tax specialists travel to Jamaica. Armed with their rapier wit and a brilliant knowledge of the tax code, they confront the bandits of the Cayman Islands, the Bahamas and Bermuda, who've been luring away the revenue that should be funding the schools and hospitals of Jamaica. Those scallywags have been exploiting the citizens of Jamaica for many years, so the last thing they expect is that a team of accountants will bring their lurks to an end. But ultimately, the good guys win, and the social services of Jamaica are safe for another day. The script should be quite easy to write, because the events are actually playing out in Jamaica right now. The Jamaican Tax Authority has borrowed a bunch of expert tax auditors from Germany. The accountant equivalent of Captain Jack Sparrow is a man named Stefan Scholz, who said he jumped at the opportunity to fight inequalities and give countries added confidence in their dealings with large taxpayers. Jamaica put a request for help on multinational tax assistance, and within three weeks, Mr Scholes found himself in Kingston, auditing the tax affairs of some of the largest multinational firms operating in Jamaica. They'd been funnelling profits to the surrounding tax havens, until Mr Scholes put a stop to their activities. You can almost imagine the scene in the Kingston bar afterwards as the lawyers com complained, in a fair fight, I'd kill you. And Mr Scholes replied, with his Captain Jack Sparrow wit, well, that's not much of an incentive to fight fair, is it? <laughs> Last September, I had the pleasure of announcing here at the ANU the latest part of Labor's plan to crack down on tax havens. Following the extraordinary leaks in the Paradise Papers and the Panama Papers, the work of the United States and the Australian Senate committees, the campaigning by tax advocacy groups, we're starting to build up a picture of how multinational firms use shell companies and tax havens to avoid paying their fair share. Every now and then, this new little snippet emerges. My favourite from earlier this year 
is the fact that the Bahamas is now the country that is the fifth largest owner of foreign owner of Australian farmland. Globally, around $600 billion of profits are estimated to be shifted to tax havens, representing almost 40% of multinational profits. There's at least five reasons to be worried about tax havens. First, they siphon money away from jurisdictions like Australia. That means that we have to either increase the tax burden on individuals or businesses, take on more debt or cut social services. Tax havens and similar shenanigans have been estimated to cost the Australian taxpayer the equivalent of six billion US dollars a year. Second, tax havens are the hiding ground for a lot of crooks. Not everyone in them is a crook, but they are used by drug runners, extortionists and money launders, by Al-Qaeda, the North Korean regime and the Mex and Mexican drug kingpins. It's estimated that around four-fifths of the money sitting in offshore bank accounts is there in breach of other countries' tax laws. And third, tax havens increase inequality. Offshore wealth held by Australians in tax havens is estimated around 6% of national income. That means there's more than $100 billion in assets held offshore by wealthy Australians. Now, I've used the term wealthy, but actually I should be looking for a stronger term. Very wealthy, extremely wealthy. One study suggests that half the money held by individuals in tax havens is held by people who are in the top one ten thousandth of the wealth distribution. Fourth, if the case for a big business tax cut wasn't already fairly lacklustre, tax havens make it even weaker. The more that multinationals stash their profits in tax havens, the less sense it makes for advanced nations to engage in a race to the bottom in corporate tax rates. Fifth, poverty rates are high in many tax havens and in nations affected by their activities. Some researchers believe there's a thing called the finance curse, akin to the resource curse, in which there's an adverse impact on countries which are tax havens for being overly dependent on those sectors. Managing Director of the IMF, Christine Lagarde, observes that developing countries lose about $200 billion in revenue per year or about 1.3% of GDP, due to companies shifting profits to low-tax locations. And it's that final point that I want to elaborate on, how tax havens hurt other developing countries and what we can do about it. One study aims to put a figure on how much revenue each nation loses as a result of tax havens and other multinational tax avoidance. For the US, it's $189 billion annually. For China, $67 billion. And as I've noted, the figure for Australia, $6 billion US. But as a share of national income, the biggest victims of tax havens are estimated to be the world's poorest nations. As they say, the intensity of losses is substantially greater in low and middle income countries, and in sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America and the Caribbean, and in South Asia, compared to other regions. Ghana and Chad lose the equivalent of 7% of GDP annually to multinational tax avoidance. Guinea and Zambia, 4%. The Philippines, Solomon Islands, Fiji and Laos lose the equivalent of 2% of GDP annually. As a share of national income, that's more than the damage done to the US, to Australia or to China. 
Multinational tax avoidance places developing countries in a quandary. As the study notes, when firms respond strongly to profit-shifting incentives, increases in tax rates generate little or no increase in government revenue. The inability to constrain profit-shifting therefore constitutes an effective constraint on tax policy, and low rates may be the best feasible policy given this constraint. This illustrates the broader finding that fiscal capacity tends to be low in developing nations. So what do we do to make sure that developing countries get their fair share of multinational profits? The most important initiative is the OECD and G20's Base Erosion and Profit Shifting Project. It's been operating since 2013, working inclusively with over 100 countries and jurisdictions to tackle multinational tax avoidance and close gaps in international tax rules that allow multinational enterprises to legally but artificially shift profits to low-tax or no-tax jurisdictions. <coughs> Australia used to have a, a seat on the steering committee, but we no longer do. In effect, we've shifted from the front seat into the back seat. And that's a pity. If Labor wins the election on the 18th of May, we'll seek to play a leadership role in international efforts to crack down on corporate tax avoidance. But there's also a really promising initiative directed at ensuring that developing countries get a better deal. In July 2015, the OECD and United Nations Development Program joined forces to launch Tax Inspectors Without Borders. That followed detailed policy work by the Tax Justice Network, as well as significant public campaigns on tax evasion by non-government organisations including Oxfam, Global Citizen, the Global Alliance for Tax Justice, Christian Aid and ActionAid. Tax Inspectors Without Borders facilitates targeted tax audit assistance programs in developing countries around the globe. Modestly funded, it's been hailed as being capable of ensuring that developing countries mobilise much needed domestic revenues in support of the Sustainable Development Goals agenda. It combines the OECD's technical competence in tax matters and its network of tax experts, with the United Nations Development Program's country-level presence around the world, access to policymakers at the highest level, and expertise in public financial management. Tax Inspectors Without Borders consists of four components. One, host administrations. Those tax administrations in developing countries who are seeking expert assistance to build audit capacity. Part two is the experts either recently retired, current or former tax audit experts with experience working in national tax administrations. Three, the partner administrations who either offer via secondment uh, to uh, uh, provide currently serving, uh, serving officials to be experts for a Tax Inspectors Without Borders program uh, or lend their expertise to the management of the program. And four, donors organisations providing financial support for the tax, tax Inspectors Without Borders tax audit assistance programs. Current donors include Canada, the EU, uh, to, uh, don't know whether to say the UK, I guess I should say the UK, having said the EU, uh, and the United States. Are the programs designed to avoid privacy risks and put developing countries in the lead role? Host administrations must request assistance. They retain autonomy and control over their tax affairs. And to date, the results are stunning. 
The most recent Tax Inspectors Without Borders annual report found that in many cases the ratio of revenue raised for host administrations to donor costs was 100 to 1. That's a rate of return that would make Warren Buffett blush. If anyone in the room knows of another public program with a 100 to 1 return, please let me know immediately. Stick your hand up at the end of the talk. I want to know about it. Since 2016, the program has raised hundreds of millions of dollars for developing nations. As Tax Inspectors Without Borders board member Ngozi Okonjo-Iweleka, who's also the former finance minister of Nigeria, puts it, According to the World Bank, the average tax-to-GDP ratio for sub-Saharan Africa was just 15%. Aid is diminishing, there's more focus on domestic resource mobilisation. Improving tax policy and administration is a critical part of the revenue effort. Government also has a role in boosting trust and accountability in institutions handling public resources. She goes on to say that Tax Inspectors Without Borders has made commendable efforts in the past two years including its increased focus on South-South cooperation, deploying tax audit inspectors to host administrations in Africa and beyond. She points out that developing countries won't be able to deliver on the sustainable development goals without a quantum increase in the mobilisation of domestic public resources. And it must continue to play its role as a catalyst to ensure, encourage business to uphold even higher standards of reputable tax behaviour and avoid the reputational risk associated with aggressive tax planning. As she points, it, points out, it's pretty striking that an initiative with such an extraordinarily high rate of return is still in need of donor financing. At present, Tax Inspectors Without Borders is largely based in Paris and predominantly funded by European nations. It mostly uses European expertise. But it's expanding into the Asia-Pacific. Among the countries in our region who are calling for assistance are Papua New Guinea and Vietnam. In fact, it was in December of last year that Papua New Guinea's Deputy Prime Minister, Charles Abel, formally requested a Tax Inspectors Without Borders program for their Internal Revenue Commission to tackle base erosion and profit shifting issues in the mining, forestry and fishing sector. The audits will begin this year. So I'm delighted to announce today that if a shortened government is elected on the 18th of May, Australia will become a donor and partner in the program. In conjunction with my friend and colleague Penny Wong, the Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs, and in my capacity as Shadow Assistant Treasurer, I can confirm that Labor will commit $5 million annually on an ongoing basis to tax inspectors without borders. And additionally, we'll use a small amount of that funding to assist the Australian Tax Office to second experts at the request of host administrations, where that's appropriate and desired. Our commitment's significant, as it will allow the program to administer an Asia-Pacific hub and dramatically increase its work, which is already in high demand, across the Asia-Pacific. The funding forms a small component of Labor's proposed increase in overseas development assistance. And like our budgetary approach more broadly, we're funding our promises by tackling multinational tax avoidance and closing unsustainable tax loopholes. When it comes to improving Australia's own laws, Bill Shorten, Chris Bowen and I have developed a strong package of multinational tax avoidance measures. We'll tighten debt deduction loopholes by, used by multinational companies and increase the penalties for individuals 
who are promoting tax evasion and avoidance. We'll crack down on citizenship shopping by requiring all individual Australian taxpayers to tell the tax office if they have residency or citizenship in another jurisdiction. We'll introduce public reporting of country-by-country country reports and provide protection and rewards for tax whistleblowers. We'll introduce a publicly accessible register of beneficial ownership of Australia's listed companies and trusts. We'll require companies to disclose to shareholders as a material tax risk if they're doing business in a tax haven and require all firms tendering for big government contracts to disclose their country of tax domicile. We'll develop guidelines for tax haven investment by superannuation funds. And in fact, the specific Tax Inspectors Without Borders proposal uses funding fully provisioned from our Flights to Tax Havens policy announced last year. Under Labor, travel expenses to and fro blacklisted tax havens will no longer be able to be automatically claimed. A government's international development policy has to accord with Australia's values. As Penny Wong recently put it, Labor's foreign policy is founded on the belief that we deal with the world as it is and we seek to change it for the better. This means a foreign policy that is not just transactional but purposive. These purposes are defined by our values, interests and identity. Compassion, equality, fairness, democratic principles and the protection of rights. And we know what our interests are. The security of our nation and its people, prosperity of the nation and the people, a stable, peaceful region anchored in the rule of law and constructive internationalism. And we know who we are. An inclusive, diverse nation which draws strength from the waves of immigrants who have come to our continent and from our First Peoples. Our foreign policy will speak to who we are, the confidence we have in ourselves, the values we believe in and the region and world we want to live in. The Shorten Labor Government will increase overseas development assistance as a share of gross national income every year that we're in office, starting with our first budget. In government, we'll rebuild and grow Australia's International Development Assistance Program and work with the international community to achieve the long-standing funding targets set out in the Sustainable Development Goals. Development assistance under Labor grew every year when we were last in office, reaching around 0.35% of gross national income. The Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison governments have slashed the aid budget to 0.21% of gross national income. That's the lowest level on record. If the aid budget follows its current trajectory, development assistance will drop to 0.18% of gross national income in 2022 and to 0.16% by the end of the decade. The Coalition's cuts have impugned our reputation internationally, undermined our national interests, damaged our efforts to alleviate poverty and made our region less secure. Today's Tax Inspectors Without Borders announcement complements Labor's practical commitment to ensure more dollars are sent to developing nations through remittances. And we'll do that by making sure that more of those dollars make it to the intended hands. Globally, remittance flows are almost a trillion Australian dollars. For many developing nations, remittances are worth more than foreign aid. Some economies would collapse without them. In Tonga, for example, they're a third of national income. And behind that statistic are thousands of hard-working Tongans putting in a few extra hours of work so they can give some of their paycheck to less fortunate family members. 
Yet according to the World Bank, an Australian who remits money overseas will see, if they remit $1,000, $77 eaten up in foreign exchange fees and charges. There's an easy solution to getting that, those fees down. Full fee transparency. That means remittance providers would have to tell uh, their customers the total cost of sending money uh, offshore. Not just the flat fee, but the exchange rate spread. Relative to a bench the same benchmark you'll see if you go to Google Finance or Yahoo Finance. Providers can quickly calculate their total fees, but right now they're not telling them, telling their customers in most cases. Under a shortened government, we change that. And that commitment to reducing the cost of remittances illustrates our belief that reducing global poverty must require a full, a full court press. We've got to improve institutions and increase aid. I'm a strong supporter of the try, test, learn approach. And Labor's Evaluator General will aim to ensure that we have more randomised trials in our aid program. But unlike the current government, we won't give lip service to innovation while slashing funding. Under Labor, we won't just provide more support to developing nations in the Asia-Pacific. We'll also ensure they get more remittance flows. And through Tax Inspectors Without Borders, will ensure they collect more of the tax revenue that they're entitled to. 13 years ago, experts of the Tax Justice Network travelled to several African nations to discuss the problem of tax compliance. One official told them, when we're up against these gigantic companies, we're totally outgunned by their legal teams. As their network's report noted, you might find a junior auditor with three or four years of experience of complex transfer pricing issues going up against global companies with half a dozen top tax lawyers and accountants in their team. David against Goliath stuff, but David's hands were tied because none of the relevant accounting information was being shared with him. Things are shifting. As a result of Tax Inspectors Without Borders, Captain Jack Sparrow, Stephen Scholes, Jamaican tax officials are finally getting the upper hand. As one commentator recently observed to The Economist magazine, recently a team came back from meeting one company so excited. For the first time ever, when dealing with a large taxpayer, our people did the talking. And the multinational representatives on the other side sat dumb, struggling to answer the questions. For Labor, our values don't stop at the continental edge. Social justice, decent work conditions and human rights aren't just things we fight for in Australia. They're also values that inform our dealings with the rest of the world. The same goes for our belief that multinational firms should pay their fair share of tax. Tax fairness isn't just a domestic policy issue. Under a shortened Labor government, we'll work with other countries to improve the global rules and use our aid program to ensure the world's poorest nations are no longer being ripped off by some of the world's richest companies. Thanks very much. All right, thank you very much, Andrew, uh, for a very um, wide-ranging uh, talk that uh, touched on a number of different is issues um, that will be that are of interest um, to those of us in the, in the development community, those interested in, in tax policy, um, uh, remittances, and addressing policies. Um, 
you touched on um, some of the uh, the issues around the SDGs. Uh, uh, this this falls under SDG 16, um, and it's um, uh, providing a I suppose a, a platform for addressing some of the, the broader development challenges in developing countries. Um, I had a question, um, and and I'm not expecting you to, that I don't expect you to answer. I will open it up to the floor in in a minute. But I I love this uh, this this vision of, um, of of a whole bunch of Jack Sparrows going out um, and and roaming the seven seas with their uh, with their clipboards and their pens in hand. And I, I kind of see them as having eye patches, but I I couldn't help but think, what, are the eye patches tax deductible? Um, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, you don't need to answer that, but I will open it up to the up to the floor for any questions that you might have for Andrew. And, and given that you're so familiar with this format, I'll, I'll hand it over to you to, to handle good. those. Yeah. Could you say a bit more about the rewards policy? Yes. So at the moment, uh, the situation for those who blow the whistle on large firms not paying tax. Uh, uh, the, the rewards are non-existent and the risks are extremely high. Uh, when you look at the way in which uh, uh, whistleblowers have been treated, uh, many of them asked a decade later, would you do it again, say that they deeply regret it. So part of looking after whistleblowers is to ensure that they don't suffer sanctions, but an another part of it is ensuring that if they do a good deed for the rest of us, then they get to get some share of that penalty. Um, these Quitam lawsuits have been around for centuries. Uh, Britain pioneered them, as, uh, as I recall, but the United States has been a more predominant user of them more, more recently. Uh, we'd cap out the reward at $250,000, uh, but we do think that it's appropriate to have some share of that reward going to, uh, to the person who ensures that we as a community are able to get a fair share of tax. Ash. Um, thanks, Andrew. I just wanted to ask a little bit more um, about, uh, you mentioned PNG as an example of a country that was going to engage with tax inspectors without borders. I think, um, you know, the, there's a lot of bigger issues that have affected issues around tax compliance and multinational but, um, behaviour in countries like PNG, including corruption and governance more generally. And under the current government, there's been a strong focus on governance in the aid program and an increasing um, amount of, of funding. I'm just wondering where this program would sit in terms of, of Labor's broader perspective on um, governance work in, in countries like PNG or other developing countries. It can be an area that's quite fraught and challenging to achieve. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've, we've got a long history in this. I know Treasury was, uh, for a time, and perhaps still seconding people to the Finance Department of the Solomon Islands. Uh, the work that we've done cooperating through APEC, for example, around good governance programs has, has been important. Uh, there's always a question as to uh, cause and versus, causation versus correlation. Uh, the, uh, I remember one of my professors, Andres Velasco, uh, used, to, used to say that the reason developing countries... Developing countries... Um, we, all, we think developing countries are poor because they don't have Switzerland's institutions. Switzerland, in part, has its institutions because it's affluent. Um, but nonetheless, we want to work on governance where we can uh, and greater international engagement could be helpful. I also think there's a bit of an interplay between good laws and good administration of those laws. Uh, so you've got greater confidence closing a tax loophole if you think you'll have the expertise to be able to, to tackle it. And hopefully there's a, there's a virtuous 
cycle that comes from tax inspectors without borders playing back into uh, to good quality law reforms. Uh, uh, thank you. Um, two questions. The one regarding country by country reporting, making that you will be aware that in 98, the OECD actually tackled the tax havens harmful tax practices. And that initiative actually floundered when George W. Bush sort of, you know, put a spoke in the, in the wheels there. Um, and if you look at the OECD work uh, at the moment, sort of it walks a tightrope in tackling multinational tax avoidance and the role that the U.S. is playing. Now, the U.S. has made it quite clear that if country-by-country country reports go public, they will withdraw because of confidentiality issues. Do you foresee that that is a reachable sort of agenda um, with, the, with the U.S. threatening to basically derail the, the process? Yeah, look, I'm confident that there's a way through on that. And certainly Europe is moving increasingly towards uh, an inclination to, uh, to, to release public country-by-country country reports. I'm aware there's sensitivity around it, uh, but there are many firms that are already releasing this information. So uh, our two big miners, for example, uh, BHP and Rio, uh, already release, uh, release information on a country-by-country -country basis, uh, as do other extractives through the AITI. Um, so I don't think it's as insurmountable as some people have argued, uh, and I do think, as we've seen with the release of total tax payments by Australia's largest firms, uh, transparency drives a better quality public debate, uh, which then feeds back into uh, better, better laws. Thanks, Edward. That's really interesting. I was just um, caught up when you were saying the policy is going to be to get rid of the uh, tax deductibility of, trans of travel to countries that are known tax havens. Would you envisage that in including the sort of the transfer tax havens, the UK, Netherlands? Switzerland and the like, because um, research from a couple of years ago on where company corporate profits go find that they tend to funnel through places like Hong Kong and the Netherlands and Switzerland as a transfer tax, tax haven before they end up in the sunk tax haven, you know, Cayman Islands and the more traditional mm. kind of tax haven. So you've got this, you know, we do a lot of legitimate business with the UK and the Netherlands and Hong Kong and the like, but you know, you. It's, it's, it's almost leaves the cover for them to go and do illegitimate business if you don't tackle that as well. Yeah, I certainly take the, take the point about uh, transfer and sunk tax havens. Um, our, our list of tax havens where those deductions would be automatically denied is fairly small, so it's constrained to places like uh, Caymans, the Bahamas. Uh, and to be clear, you, uh, you don't get an automatic deduction you need to justify uh, to the tax, tax office. Um, so if you're, if you're actually doing business, that's fine, but you'll need to provide the sort of level of information that you would, you would have to provide were you audited. Uh, that, kind, that level of information would have, would have to be provided up front. Uh, we did obviously consider the implications of this were we to go with the broader list, but I think there's plenty of individuals and businesses who are doing legitimate business in places like the UK and Hong Kong, which have nothing to do with multinational tax avoidance. So uh, we weren't inclined to extend it on that basis. Yeah. Hi, thanks a lot. This was really interesting. I have a question about um, people that, I mean, when you said that the ratio was 100 to 1 and it's a super successful mm. program, but what are the specific mechanisms that get 
somebody who was avoiding paying taxes to suddenly remit? What, what are, how does that work? Well, when you read the reports of uh, Tax Inspectors Without Borders or the Tax Justice Network uh, reports that preceded its, its, its inception, um, they talk about the fact that many of these countries have the right laws in the books. They just don't have the technical capability to enforce them. Uh, so, you know, you see this even in the personal income tax space. Um, countries in our region uh, which have reasonable tax codes that you would think would uh, be garnering more revenue as inequality rises um, find themselves struggling to work out how the super-rich are hiding their assets. Um, so simple things like moving towards pay-as-you-go tax systems, getting more electronic uh, uh, transactions uh, data back into, back into place, uh, the data matching programs that have been enormously important uh, for the Australian Tax Office. You know, the Australian Tax Office now says if you want to ensure that the person you're dealing with doesn't avoid tax, just transfer the money electronically to them uh, because they now have access to those data and can match those in the case of an audit. Uh, so being able to do high-quality data matching, uh, having the expertise of understanding the laws and, and the confidence to go up against actors who are uh, potentially politically powerful in the society, all of that's import important to good tax compliance. So it's all really about information to facilitate enforcement. Inf information and uh, understanding about uh, how what's worked in uh, in developed countries. I think there's a lot of uh, tacit knowledge in the administration of a tax system, which uh, somebody with a couple of dec decades' experience, such as uh, Mr. Scholes, who I mentioned before, is able to bring into uh, to another country's context, uh, and hopefully build up that expertise and the, the local people around them. If, if you allow me, uh, sure. sorry, somebody else. On the, I found that interesting, the last couple of weeks, we followed the PACE reports. The ATO announced that the mischief was basically at the bottom end and that $8 billion was going astray with uh, trainees and people, small business people, claiming deductions that they weren't entitled to. When I watched the budget speech and then two nights later, the well, shortened speech, the focus was suddenly on the multinationals. And for me, there was a big disconnect between the public message that said the Australian tax avoidance tax evasion problem sits at the lower end and not, uh, you know, with the big multinationals. And suddenly, when the election announcements came, the focus was uh, sort of the snipers were pointing their, their tax guns at the multinationals. Any comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it might be that uh, avoidance looks like a barbell, and so I think you might you might have uh, more at at, uh, at the tails. But I'm not sure we know. So the US has TCMP, the randomised audits that are done, um, I think most recently in 1996, although they might have managed one under the Obama administration. And TCMP gives you a sense as to uh, whether ev uh, evasion rises across the income distribution. I'm not aware, and John will correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not aware of a randomised audit done in the Australian tax, tax base uh, which would allow us to answer the question as to whether evasion rises or falls as you go across the income spectrum. Um, without that, we're talking a little more anecdotally. Uh, the conversations I have with the tax office suggest that they're 
they're very confident that they know where that, where, which sectors need to be focused on. But I think what we've got is a sector-by-sector -sector approach rather than uh, proper yeah, distribution. Just on our think what, yeah. what, what, we, what we do know is that it's, it's more cost-effective to point your, your weapons at profit-shifting by mm. large corporations and it's not nearly so mm. cost-effective to, to get extra dollars out of the tradies. Yeah. Yes, I mean, you look at the Chevron decision, which is a couple of hundred million dollars uh, for running internal loans at uh, quite high interest rates, um, the returns to that are pretty significant for the taxpayer. Yeah. yeah, a couple of questions. I had a different one first, but um, getting back to this issue, I mean, it seems to me that a large purpose, large part of the purpose of tax policy is income redistribution. So even if the tradies at the bottom end are getting away with just as much as the multinationals, uh, if you think government tax policy should be about income distribution, then of course you're going to target the multinationals rather than the bottom end of the spectrum. So that's how I would answer that question. Um, I'm going to, yes, although most of my work is international and developed focus, I'm going to be very nationalistic in my concerns right now. Um, the six billion or so that um, that one study had estimated mm. Australia was losing. Do you have any feel for how much of that we could possibly, with either better laws or better enforcement of those laws, claw back? Uh, so the policies we've had costed uh, bring in the order of hundreds of millions, um, policies costed through the Parliamentary Budget Office. Uh, but I think uh, part of this is about better coordinated work with the OECD and the G20. Uh, we're at the forefront of that work uh, at the time when we we're hosting the G20 uh, in Australia, and we're setting up to host the G20 in Australia. But we've largely fallen, fallen off it. Uh, I think there's a lot more to be done in terms of uh, putting Australia back, in, back into that conversation uh, and making sure that the international agenda moves more quickly. Uh, the focus on tech companies in Australia has been over uh, video takedown and posting inappropriate videos recently. That's, that's an important issue but it's also vital that we have sensible conversations with tech firms about the extent to which they're using uh, uh, locations with, which are selected for their patent box advantages uh, rather than because of any sort of economic rationale. Um, you take the example of uh, online travel, travel agencies at the moment. So many of us will use Expedia or Booking.com in order to uh, uh, book hotels. Uh, the, that's a duopoly, essentially, a whole bunch of names, Kayak, Travago, Priceline, but really it's two big firms uh, located in uh, low-tax jurisdictions, uh, patent box jurisdictions, uh, that are getting a commission up to 30% uh, of the total hotel bill. Uh, so while they're managing to gouge uh, Australian hotels, that's a, a massive slice of our accommodation industry that's essentially being funneled offshore to, to a very low tax jurisdiction. Uh, one thing we've done in that area is to say that they can no longer enforce price parity clauses. They can no longer tell hotels that they may not offer a cheaper deal on their own website. Um, and that's a, you, you might think of that as a policy to uh, help the lo local accommodation sector, but you can also regard it as a policy to reduce multinational profit shifting. Uh, so we may need to go for these sorts of uh, sector-specific policies in order to reduce some of the profits being channelled offshore at the moment. Um, 
Hint, tip to everyone in the room, if you're thinking about using Expedia or Booking.com, you can always use it as a search engine. Uh, then take that hotel and go and find their website and book there, uh, and then up to a third of the uh, hotel bill will actually uh, go back into the uh, local economy. Any other questions? All right. Well, uh, thank you. If you just join me in thanking um, Andrew for... You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.